This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I usually discuss aspects of science with an emphasis on electronics and electric technology, power generation, you name it. For a moment, though, I'd like to make a departure and talk about soundproofing and a unique solution they've devised at a university in Sweden. Making a room soundproof really isn't as easy as it sounds, no pun intended. You need to keep sound contained within the room and keep external sounds out. At ARRL headquarters, we constructed a media production room a few years ago, and part of that job entailed attaching special foam blocks to all the walls. If you ever tour ARRL headquarters, you may see this. The foam blocks worked reasonably well, but they could have been better. They still have to alert nearby offices when they're about to do recordings in that studio. I produce this podcast at my home office, and my wife, who also works at home, really wishes I had some sort of soundproofing installed in this room. She hears me when I'm recording, and I hear her when she's on a telephone call. It's hardly an ideal situation. And then, of course, my ham station's in this room. When I tend to get, how shall we say, excited when I'm chasing a new DXCC entity or I'm involved in a contest, according to my family, I can get pretty loud, uh, even with the door closed. So it'd be nice to have some sort of sound insulation against that as well. Well, the Swedish scientists have developed an alternative to putting a bunch of foam on the wall, and it takes the form of a spring-loaded sound dampening screw. They call it the Revolutionary Sound Absorbing Screw, or just the Sound Screw for short. And the device was created by a team at Malmo University. It consists of a threaded section at the bottom. You'll have to use your imagination to visualize this. A coil spring in the middle, and a section with a flat head at the top. The screw is inserted into a hole drilled through a drywall panel and then into the underlying wood stud. It's then turned until its threaded section is all the way into the wood and its head is sitting flush against the outside surface of the drywall. Can you see that? The spring forms a gap of just a few millimeters between the stud and the drywall's underside. Now, when sound waves from an adjacent dwelling subsequently travel through the wood stud and into the wall's sound screws, the springs in the screws limit the transmission of the vibrations into the drywall. They dampen it, in other words. As a result, people in the room hear less of the noise. The same effect works in reverse, of course. In lab tests involving traditional drywall panels, they're claiming that the sound screws reduced through the wall sound levels by about 9 dB, which worked out to about half the perceived sound when the traditional screws were used. The technology is also performed well when tried on the ceiling of a hair salon, where the existing standard screws were simply replaced with sound screws. If you've ever been to a hair salon, that can be a noisy place too. Now, don't go looking for these screws just yet. They're only available in Sweden, and they're expensive. 
However, a number of companies here in the United States have expressed interest in getting licenses to make the screws, so you may not have to wait long. I'm speaking with Jim Andrews, KH6HTV, and Jim wrote a really interesting article that appears in the October issue of QST Magazine in the Microwavelengths column. Good afternoon, Jim. Good afternoon, Steve. Nice chatting with you. You updated the readers quite a bit on the status, I guess, of amateur television. And this is something that I have to confess, it's been a long time, but I briefly dabbled in. Oh, gosh, it's been probably close to 30 years ago, back in the uh, the analog era. I'm guessing a lot has changed since then, hasn't it? Yeah, I guess basically it's the same transition that's happened in broadcast TV. It is happening in the uh, amateur television community, and that's uh, going digital. So that's, yeah, that's the biggest change. Of course, a lot of people who may be relatively new hams uh, would be surprised to realize that amateurs can uh, transmit television. They might be aware vaguely of still images, like on slow scan television or so-called digital slow scan on HF. But hams have been doing this for quite a long time, haven't they? Well, yeah. Going back in the records that I found in old QSTs and stuff, I found the first uh, ham TV uh transmission dated back to about 1940 pretty much at the birth of tv so yeah hams have been active with it then ever since and it's uh it's definitely uh one of those uh, gifts or blessings from the fcc that allows us to run really wide band signals uh, such as television and when i say wide band we're talking typically six megahertz of bandwidth although that's uh one thing in the in the new digital tv uh, there's been quite a bit of experimentation um, with uh, going to quite a bit narrower bandwidths. And uh, some of the equipment that we're normally using with our digital television uh, is capable of just being programmed to run on narrower bandwidths. So um, some of them are running down to maybe as narrow as uh, megahertz or even a little lower than that and still getting a really high quality technology digital pictures across the channel. Speaking of digital TV, in your article, you mentioned ATSC, which of course here in the United States is the digital commercial broadcast television standard, but you seem to indicate that for digital TV among amateurs in the U.S., it's mostly DVB-T. Can you elaborate on that? Well, that's basically the system that's used pretty much L all around the world. It was originally developed for the European system, and it stands for Digital Video Broadcast-T for terrestrial. There's also a dash S for satellite and a dash C for cable. And uh, they're all encoded quite a bit different because of the propagation medium in which they go through. Um, the terrestrial system uh, does a lot of extra correction to handle severe multipath, whereas the satellites system uh, is designed for essentially no multipath but weak signals coming off of satellites, and the cable DAC is designed for a perfect uh, cable environment where you've got strong signals and no multipath or no reflections. When we first started uh, doing the digital TV, the ATSC. The cost of getting a modulator 
was prohibitive, uh, measured in thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Wow. You know, they, they were basically being built to be sold to tra- uh, broadcast stations only. But, um, yeah, what really got us started, there was a company in Taiwan called High Desk Technology that came on the market. And um, I guess I discovered it about 2014. And their modulators were down around, uh, you know, about the cost of a good uh, dual band uh, mobile rig. Four to five hundred dollar range, and that that suddenly made it uh, very attractive. And their system was, in fact, using the DVB dash T. But there's also doing more research uh, into it. There's definitely technical advantage of the DVB dash T over the ATSC. The ATSC really doesn't tolerate any mobile Doppler shift hardly at all, and the DVB-T, I mean, I've driven at 70 mile an hour down the road and transmitted or received with no problems at all. So it uh, it handles good Doppler shift. Anyway, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the major supplier for most of the people here in the U.S. that are doing the DVB-T is this company in Taiwan called Hi-Des. And they've been doing a, a good job of trying to address the amateur market. Um, they've been very receptive to uh, feedback uh, from various hams in terms of how they modify their products. And actually part of the feedback from hams was, can we go lower in bandwidth? So they they did approach uh, this idea of going lower in bandwidth. It turns out uh, going lower in bandwidth helps out on the repeater situation for those uh, folks that are living in the big metro areas like the Los Angeles area. Uh, out there for their digital TV repeaters, they really didn't have enough spectrum available in the 70 centimeter band to do 10 to do six megahertz bandwidth, and so they're, I think they're running at four megahertz on some some of their repeater transmitters. Now you mentioned in the article that a considerable amount of this activity is taking place on uh, microwave frequencies. Is that correct? Well, uh, yeah, the FCC allows us to do television on the 70-centimeter band and higher, so that's 450. So we're really not at microwaves there. The article was focused on microwaves because it Paul Wade actually invited me to write the article, and it, it appeared in the microwave column uh, of QST. But uh, most of the activity really for TV is in the 70-centimeter and 23-centimeter band. So the 23-centimeter band is kind of the lower fringe of microwaves, you know, just above the gigahertz. Yes. And uh, for most of the television repeaters, that's where they're located. But, uh, yeah, there's also uh, doing things in microwaves. and We ourselves are doing playing around with it here in Boulder. But it becomes more of a point-to-point link contact uh, on microwaves. Although we do have one of our transmitters on our own local repeater is at uh, 5.9 gigahertz, and uh, it's a it is running through an omnidirectional antenna, and we we've, we've received it as far as way as 90 miles away. From. I was going to ask you about uh, what your what your best DX has been with uh, digital television so far. Our best day, DX here, uh, you know, probably is about. Uh, uh, Let's see. It was probably about 
maybe a hundred miles from the top of Pikes Peak back to Boulder. Um, but uh, there has been a well, let's see. I just recently published in our newsletter a report from uh, uh, some hams over in Japan where they were essentially doing uh, probably microwave ducting across the ocean, across the Sea of Japan. I'm trying to remember. I think they got out to uh, about 260, I believe it was 260 kilometers on both 5 and 10 gigahertz bands. Wow. High definition digital TV. Excellent. And excellent pictures on the other end. No snow or anything else. Right. Yeah, well, it is uh, it is digital. It's either there and perfect or not there at all. We really talk about what we call the cliff effect with digital. Yeah, if you start to see pixelization occurring in your picture, if you lose maybe another half to one dB of signal strength, the picture is totally gone. So it's, it's, it's really all or nothing. If somebody were to come to you and say, Tell me how to put together a station for digital television, assuming that they perhaps have a repeater that's not too far away. What Beyond the uh, modulator, what do they need? Well, uh, the modulators are going to put out a low-level signal of the order of a milliwatt. And so that's great if you want to transmit across the basement of your ham shack. But uh, you need a power amplifier to boost that up to at least a few watts level. and uh, the amplifier has to be linear. Uh, we can't use a Class C amplifier like we'd use for FM. It has to be quite linear because the waveform it's amplifying is a very complex waveform that actually, if you put it on a oscilloscope, just looks like uh, white noise. And actually, if you try to listen to it on a, on a radio, uh, it just sounds like white noise also. But uh, there's a lot of peaks and valleys in it, and if you don't, if you start chopping off the peaks in that waveform, you've destroyed the digital integrity, and there's going to be zero encode, decoding. Uh, the other end, uh, the receiver actually is totally dirt cheap. We've actually found uh, on Amazon uh, some uh, receivers that were designed for the consumer market in Europe uh, as low as about $15, if you can believe. Wow. And those receivers will tune both the 70 centimeter and the 33 centimeter ham bands. Yeah. So for the receiving end, uh, yeah, it's very dirt cheap. And also some people are using these little uh, USB TV tuner dongles that you can probably buy for 10 or $20 uh, with a PC. And uh, they also use those as receivers. So the cost is not in the receiving. Yeah, so if you just want to be a not a shortwave listener but a shortwave viewer and just have the receiver, then uh, yeah, there's essentially zero dollar investment. The uh, yeah, the cost of getting in with a transmitter, well, you're talking maybe. I think the high des modulator that we tend to prefer is about three hundred and seventy dollars, and then uh, you might be spending another similar amount of money for a linear amplifier. So, yeah, by the time, uh, and then you a TV camera, uh, we found that there's a lot of great camcorders. Uh, a lot of us are using some from Canon uh, that sell for about $250 a piece. So, so yeah, you're probably looking at the cost of uh, IC7300, you know, $1,000 uh, if you wanted to get into uh, 
high definition digital TV with both transmit and receive capability or fifteen dollars if you should want to receive. Right. In your area you have a TV repeater. And how is it normally used? In other words, say I had this station. I I assume you don't just get on and call CQ or or do you? Well you could, but chances are nobody will ever answer you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean to be perfectly honest, I mean I monitor the two meter repeaters around here and today they are seem to be darn quiet as opposed to when I first started doing it in 1970 maybe um, then when when we only had one repeater it was very busy but um, we have a weekly net where we've got maybe a dozen people that will get on and um, our nets typically uh, will run for an hour and a half maybe two hours um, on a Thursday afternoon um, so that major major usage is once a week on, on that. Um, we do also stream over the internet our output of repeater, and so we do have we do have some people that are unable to receive the signal in their location, so they watch the stream instead. Might also add that the British Amateur Television Club over in England um, hosts a server that. Uh, most of the TV repeaters uh, actually use for their streaming service. So if you just go to their website, uh, you'll actually find available live video coming from, I think there's about 60 television repeaters worldwide that are available on that uh, on that server. You mentioned that in your article, and uh, I decided to give it a try, and it was very interesting to actually watch live amateur radio digital television as it was happening just for any listeners who want to give this a try here's the url it's b a t c bravo alpha tango charlie dot o r g dot u k forward slash live l i v e yeah and that'll take you to that basic page and there you can select uh any one of well about half of those uh, repeaters are streaming something 24-7. A lot of them may may just be a test pattern if they're not actively being used at the time. Yeah, for our particular repeater, we only stream up when we're actually live. Uh, One other uh, use of our repeater I might mention, uh, it's also to support our local ARES group, uh, which has been extremely active, probably one of the most active ARES groups nationwide in the use of television um we've actually uh, we're going back over 30 years ago when the local sheriff asked our ars group to provide him with television and it's been a key part of ars here ever since probably the last time we used our repeater we had a, a local forest fire that came down burned pretty close to the city and so we were transmitting pictures of that fire from several locations to the EOC. I'm going to eavesdrop on your net, I think. Uh, when, when do you do that again? Did you say Thursday? It's uh, Thursday afternoon. starts at 3 o'clock local time, mountain mountain daylight time. Okay. And anybody yeah. with an internet connection can uh, can watch. Precisely. Well, thank you very much, Jim. This has been very interesting. Well, it's my pleasure. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech. Produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com.
If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.